0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. First off this week, we're talking about Pope Francis' comments at his Sunday Angelus address, denouncing theoretical condemnations and calling for gestures of love. Some of Jerry's sources said that this was an allusion to last week's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document banning the blessing of gay unions. We'll talk about the bigger picture of what that means and also about the use of anonymous sources in Vatican reporting. Up next, we'll talk about Jerry's wide-ranging interview with the Vatican Secretary for Relations with States. We'll talk this week about the Vatican's strategy in the Middle East and what their goals are. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry.
2: Good afternoon from a sunny spring day in Rome, Colleen. That
1: sounds beautiful. Um, you guys are in lockdown right now, right? You're recording from home.
2: Yes, most of the country is in lockdown. The city is like a ghost town in the evening. Right now, there are a few people on the streets. The bars are closed. The shops are closed. The restaurants are closed. The buses are running on the streets, but practically nobody in them.
1: Um, even though things are pretty quiet in Rome right now, the news has been really crazy. Uh, we've, we've had a very busy week, even though you've been in lockdown. So let's get talking about that. Um, the first story we want to talk about this week is that on Sunday in his Angelus address, Pope Francis was talking about how Christians are called to make Jesus visible in the world, which means, quote, Sowing seeds of love, not with fleeting words, but through concrete, simple, and courageous examples, not with theoretical condemnations, but with gestures of love. And some of your sources read this as uh, an allusion to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's document last week on blessing same-sex unions and saying this was actually him sort of expressing some displeasure with that. I was wondering what what you take this to mean. Does it mean that Francis was unhappy with this document?
2: I think I should explain clearly what happened on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, As is usual, we journalists get an advanced text of what the Pope plans to deliver. So it's a prepared text, which he has seen and cleared. But we're warned the text has to be compared to to what he actually says on delivery. And when he spoke, we began to see that he started inserting some key phrases— one of which uh, you you quoted that uh, we should uh, give witness to Christ, not with theoretical condemnations, but with gestures of love. Again, he speaks about uh, the Lord with his grace makes us bear fruit, even when the soil is dry due to misunderstandings, difficulty of persecution. And then he adds, or claims of legalism or clerical moralism. And then he adds twice in the text, we've got to take on God's style, which means closeness, compassion, and tenderness. Now, these were additions to the text. And when the additions come in, uh, we're always sensitive to what is the context. And the context was a week in which there was quite a storm over the document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which he had Been informed about and which he had authorized to publish.
1: Just as a refresher for our listeners, um, this is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document that said that uh, the Church cannot bless same-sex unions because quote God cannot bless sin. This was a comment that that really hurt a lot of LGBT Catholics. It was a big break in Pope Francis's usual more pastoral tone on LGBT issues. And last week on the show, we talked about how there were some questions about how the document came together. Uh, We spoke about how it was drafted by a small handful of people rather than the usual 25 or 30 who would be involved. And we also spoke about how it came across the Pope's desk as he was preparing for his trip to Iraq. And how although we don't know for how long the Pope was able to look at the document, it at least wasn't long enough that the Vatican felt that they could use their ordinary language saying that he had approved the text and ordered its publication. Instead, it said something that the Vatican doesn't often say, which is that the Pope had been informed of the document and assented to its publication. In response to speculation and heated debate over blessing same-sex unions in Germany, Rome has spoken, reiterating the church's perennial teaching. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith said on Monday that the church does not have the authority to bless same-sex unions.
2: Several significant things happened during the week. First of all, in that statement, it never says the Pope approved. It used a strange form that he, had, he was informed about it and he had authorized its publication. That's quite unusual.
1: Assented, I think, was the word that they used.
2: Assented, yes, exactly. And then the second thing was that the Vatican Daily, the Observatore Romano, did not publish the text, the explanatory note. And that is most unusual.
1: The explanatory note, when you say that, are you talking about the text from the Vatican that accompanied the document from the the CDF?
2: Exactly, exactly. Because the answer, there was a question and an answer, and the answer was negative. And then there was an explanatory note that accompanied it, which was meant to provide the rationale for why they reached that conclusion, negative conclusion. So those facts, the fact Mm -hmm. that the word the Pope there's nowhere in the document that the Pope approved it. Secondly, that the Osservatore Romano, which is, you would say, the the paper of record of the Vatican, the daily paper of record, uh, did not include the explanatory note. This already raised questions. And then when we see in his talk on Sunday, his address to the pilgrims in St. Peter's Square, he begins inserting very significant remarks. All these raise a lot of questions in my mind. So I contacted various people fairly high up asking, uh, how did you read the Sunday thing?
1: What's the conclusion that they draw from that? Is it is it that the Pope wasn't happy with this document?
2: Well, obviously, you have to understand how the Pope has addressed this whole question since 2013.
1: And maybe even before that.
2: Yeah, and in his back in Buenos Aires, uh, we, we know well. And he's consistently had this approach that's consistent with what he said closeness, compassion, tenderness, and no theoretical condemnations, but gestures of love. And yet that document was significant in the way that so many people read it as condemnatory, as judgmental as lacking that spirit that has characterized all the Pope's statements and approaches over these years as pontiff, and indeed before, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And uh, people said, well, if this is happening, it reflects unease by the Pope about the document. In this message that he's issued today, you see the mind of Francis, that we have to When we make statements, when we issue texts, etc., we have to do things that bring people closer to God, not distance people from God. So it's this pastoral approach that has marked his pontificate, and that he may feel—we don't know because he hasn't explicitly stated it—but people suggest he may feel uncomfortable with the CDF document, which he endorsed— because it doesn't fully respect that pastoral spirit. And I think it's there we have to begin to read.
1: And I mean, the thing that we've been hearing in the conversations over the last week, as those details have emerged, is some people are saying, well, none of that matters because he still put his name on it. So ultimately, you know, he's responsible. And and I think that that's, that's true, that he he probably wouldn't have disagreed with the final conclusion that the document reached. I'd I'd be interested to know what what you think might have gone differently had he actually had more time with this, because now it seems he's he's maybe making an effort to distance himself or I, I don't want to say walk it back, but at least distance himself from the document and that's not being read very positively by, by people across the political spectrum.
2: Well, people are reading many things into it. There are those who completely applaud him. Those who are normally against him are now applauding him. And those who are many who have been supporting him strongly are criticizing him. So in terms of the, the political read, you've got it right across the spectrum. Secondly, I, I think uh, it's true that the, the congregation is one of the offices that's meant to serve the Pope. So if he gives a clearance to a document for it, he has to take responsibility for it. And he has never said publicly that he hasn't taken responsibility. Whether he is happy with what it, it is, uh, as I said, the, the fact that he's putting these messages would indicate there's something not completely gelling together some some way i mean he, he you haven't heard him come out publicly and kind of reaffirm the document even though he knows that there is criticism going on so what is happening we don't know so some people expect that he he will eventually return to it in what form we don't know uh, i i think we just have to wait and see
1: so Jerry, I want to go back to this question of the the sources that you said were high up in the Vatican. Who you talked to to kind of confirm whether your reading of these comments was correct? They were anonymous sources, which is often something that you you have to use in Vatican reporting, and that caught some criticism. And I was hoping that you and I could talk about just like the use of anonymous sources more broadly in the Vatican. Why you have to do that so much, and and maybe how that's Different from uh, from the kind of journalism that we're used to in the states or other places.
2: Well, Colleen, I'm surprised you asked me the question because I read the New York Times, the Washington Post every day, and you check how many uh, certainly on the big questions how many anonymous sources uh, they were not authorized to speak. The same is true in the Vatican. The Vatican is especially when it's an issue that's dealing with the Pope, what the Pope says or what the Pope does. The Rest of the Civil Vatican Civil service, the Cardinals and bishops and certainly the more lower ranking people as well, uh, do not want to go on record seeking to doublethink the Pope or to interpret the Pope. And if it's a very controversial issue, such as this one was, they do not want to be identified on either side of the argument. So I asked different people, Not one. I follow the BBC rule: Uh, you have at least two independent witnesses, (laughs) and I had more. And over the afternoon, I talked with various people, and I got the much the same answer from each of them. Yes, the Pope's words have to be read in the context of what's happened this week. I also follow an old BBC guideline that if you are not direct witness to an event or do not have direct personal information, you work with at least two independent sources. First of all, when I publish something, when I write something, I have to be sure that somebody is not going to come and say, ah, you've written something false. So there has to be a criteria of truth in it that I have to be very certain in my own mind from the information I have that this corresponds to what actually is the situation. My experience in the Vatican is also is that sometimes People in positions in the Vatican want to get out a certain position on a story, on an event, and uh, maybe there are other sides to that which uh, they don't want out. So uh, you, you have to be sensitive that you are not buying somebody's prejudice line or somebody's slant on an event or somebody's agenda.
1: You can find Jerry's story on Pope Francis's comments in the Sunday Angelus this weekend, including comments from those top Vatican officials at americamagazine.org and as always linked in the show notes.
0: From Liverpool, Archbishop Paul
1: Gallagher is the Holy See's Secretary for Relations with States, effectively the Pope's Foreign Minister.
2: The preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights declares that the recognition of the inherent dignity of all members of the human family and of their equal and inalienable rights constitutes the foundation of freedom, justice and peace.
1: Jerry, for our second story this week, uh, you have done a wide-ranging interview with Archbishop Paul Gallagher, who is the Vatican's secretary for relations with states. uh, And America is going to roll out that interview in three parts over the course of this week. Um, So today let's talk about the first part. This covers the Middle East. Um, But before we get into the subject, can you give some background on Paul Gallagher, who he is, uh, what his job is?
2: Well, he was born in the city of the Beatles in Liverpool in England. (laughs) And he is uh, the Vatican's foreign minister. 30 years ago, he entered the Vatican's diplomatic service. He studied in Rome. He went back and worked in England. Then he joined the Vatican's Academy for Training Diplomats. Then he worked sometime in the Vatican, but he worked in, in five continents. He worked in, uh, first of all, in Europe. He was in the Philippines in Manila, when John Paul II went there and had this mass of four million people for young people, and where some of the Chinese for the first time came and attended the mass. So he's got experience of that part of the world. He also worked in Montevideo in the nunciature, the the Vatican diplomatic mission in uh, Montevideo in Uruguay. He speaks Spanish. And after the assassination of the Vatican's nuncio, the ambassador in Burundi, they asked him to go to Burundi, so he succeeded the, the nuncio who was uh, assassinated in Burundi. Mm-hmm. And while he was in Burundi, uh, the one time the roof was taken off the nunciature by uh, uh, one of these missiles not missiles, but uh, cannon shots. So he, he he's been in 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 quite some places. And then in two thousand and fourteen, Pope Francis brought him work in the Vatican. And since then, he's been there seven years. Uh, he's uh, met many of the heads of state from Putin. I think he met uh, President Trump. And he's the highest Vatican official to have met a top Chinese leader since the communists came to power on the 1st of October, 1949. So uh, this is a man with a lot of experience. Uh, in in the past, the foreign, the Vatican foreign minister, secretary of relations with states, didn't normally travel with the Pope on the trips. But Pope Francis insisted that he wanted uh, Archbishop Gallagher also to travel with him.
1: Well, let's talk about that. He was uh, he was on the trip to Iraq, was he all right? He,
2: he was on the trip to Iraq. Yes.
1: I want to ask you about what his opinion of the visit was. This was something that you asked him about. Um, you know, did did he think that, in terms of the Vatican's like diplomatic goals for the Iraq trip, did it did it meet those?
2: Well, he he said it was. Uh, I can't remember exactly the quote, but it was a remarkable visit. He said he he thinks it's probably one of the the, the great visits of the pontificate. He made clear that the Francis went first of all for the people of the country. He felt. The people of the country of all religions and none had suffered so much that he felt his presence somehow could lift them, their spirits a little. And in fact, he is the first real world leader to go in like that and to say to the world, you know, this isn't a basket case country. This isn't a country that's forever at war. You can actually come, and effectively he didn't say, but you can invest, you, you you, you, can come to this country. Archbishop Gallagher made it very clear that it. the meeting with the Ayatollah Sistani, the really one of the most revered leaders of the Shia Muslims in the world, he's one of the most revered people. And he and the Pope, uh, Archbishop Gallagher said, seemed to have a great understanding of each other. And that really was very powerful and could have global consequences. And and so that was an important goal.
1: Let me ask you, because one of the things that interested me in, in your article was that Archbishop Gallagher really revealed some of the thinking that goes into papal trips, like why the Pope decides to go to certain countries. Um, and one thing that I thought was significant was that he said, that it's important for the Pope to visit a place where he thinks that he can actually make a difference for Christians living there. So, you know, we we prepped a lot for the Iraq visit by speaking to Christians there about the difficulties they faced. And around the Pope's visit, we saw uh, different laws being enacted. There was a good good Roundup article of this that I read, uh, I think by Ines San Martin, about the different laws for protecting Christians, protecting minorities that had come out in Iraq right around the visit. And I thought it was really interesting that he he revealed kind of that that's a priority when you're talking about planning papal trips. And now the big, the big news out of this article was that uh, Pope Francis actually has his eye on two more trips to the Middle East, right? He talked about Lebanon on the plane, but in your article, uh, Archbishop Gallagher revealed he's also thinking about a trip to Iran. And I'm wondering why those countries?
2: Well, Iran is a very important uh, actor in the Middle East. But it shows, and Archbishop Gallagher said something that surprised me. He said, there's a desire from both sides. And I've since spoken to a top Shia Muslim scholar who has close links with the Iranian leadership who confirmed this to me. There is a desire on both sides. And and that was one of the new pieces of information that was in, in this interview.
1: I want to talk in kind of a bigger way about what this tells us about the Pope's goals for the Middle East?
2: The Pope's goal is peace. He's made very clear. I come as a pilgrim of peace, he said when he went there, when he went to some of the other countries. But he said, I also come as a penitent, penitent pilgrim. I'm asking the people of Iraq's forgiveness for the wrong that has been done to them by all this war and bombings and killings. And so that was very important. So the Pope's call for the Middle East is peace. And his signing of the Abu Dhabi document with the Sheikh of Al-Azhar to put Christians and Muslims on the same page, recognizing each other and brothers and sisters, his visit to the Ayatollah Sistani in Najaf, the holy city of of the Shias in Iraq, all this is has the common thread of peace and recognizing that people of religion, people of the monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, are children of God, and they are—God wants them to live in peace with each other, to love each other.
1: You know, you did actually speak really frankly with the Archbishop Gallagher about the uh, conflicts in, in Syria and Yemen. And— He gave a a pretty uh, dismal view of those. Can you talk to me about that?
2: Yes, he said, uh, for Syria, he said, there's such disaster after 10 years of war. It was close to the, I think more or less when uh, when I interviewed him, it was more or less the 10 years anniversary of that start of that war. And when you look at the figures, how many people have left the country? 10 years of children who haven't gone to school. 10 years of people who... Lost their homes, and where the big powers, I'm talking about Russia, I'm talking about the United States, and, and then the the bigger actors in the Middle East, where they all have a hand. And he said, I don't see a miracle on the horizon.
1: And he said the same for Yemen, right?
2: He said, but he said we have to work hard for peace. And he said the same for Yemen. He said Yemen, everybody wants to gain control of it, and so you again, you have all the big powers at work here. And uh, uh, you you have what the, the United Nations has now recently called a great humanitarian disaster in Yemen. You have the lack of food, you have lack of healthcare in, in the midst of the pandemic.
1: That is interesting, because the Vatican is going to be trying to to exercise whatever influence it has to to try to bring peace to these these conflicts. That, as Gallagher revealed in your interview, you know they're realistic about, they're pragmatic about. um but also they have this, this kind of lofty hope for peace.
2: What the Pope has been pushing from the beginning of his pontificate was the, was the culture of encounter. To enable people to start talking together, cooperating together, working together, and the martyrdom of dialogue, because it takes so long to get through some of these seemingly intractable problems.
1: Yeah, that's right. We we keep coming back to this uh this idea of encounter that's so central to the Francis papacy. We were talking about it just this morning with uh the comments from De Angelis this weekend where he was saying you need to not condemn theoretically, but you need to really show show gestures of love to people. And in the same way we see that reflected in his uh his diplomatic goals in saying, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna visit these places and and try to build peace that way, but it's it's always those those encounters those like the meeting with Sistani that we saw right it's that is he thinks has a lot more of an impact than you know just issuing statements or or you know staying on the level of just ideological discussions all right, Jerry, I appreciate the chance to get to talk to you about this. Uh, and I hope that you uh, stay stay, staying, stay safe, safe and healthy during lockdown.
2: Yeah, I look forward next week to talking about the rest of the interview with Archbishop Gallagher, because there's a lot, including where we touch upon what the Holy See expects, hopes for from the Biden administration.
1: Right. And we'll also talk about uh, China next week. So for our listeners, uh, those articles will actually be up, those three parts rolling out this week. Uh, They'll be up on americamagazine.org before that podcast comes out. So if you want, uh, you can read through Jerry's article. And if you have big questions, comments on the Vatican's uh, diplomatic efforts, uh, leave those on those articles, and then we'll try to answer some of those questions on next week's show. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Sebastian Gomes. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. Production assistance this week from Jerry's son, Juan Pablo. <laughs> Thanks for helping us out. You can find in depth and up to date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second eye, Vatican Pod. You can also leave us your comments and questions at inside the Vatican at americamedia.org. And if you want to support our work, the best way to do that is by subscribing to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dely. We'll see you next time.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture?